I'm glad you're here today. Uh, tonight there's a game, 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs. You probably haven't heard about it. Probably hasn't been on your radar, but just, just raise your hand if, if, if you are rooting for the 49ers. I just want to see who needs to be saved. Okay. Um, <laughs> oops. Raise your hand if you're rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, my goodness. That was about 80 to 20 in terms of the votes there. Raise your hand if you're rooting for both teams to lose. If, if you could somehow, if that could somehow happen, if both teams could lose. Well, according to the National Chicken Council, 1.4 billion, 1.4 billion chicken wings will be consumed this evening during the Super Bowl, and that got the best amen so far. A couple things about that. I'm going to play my part. I will contribute in, in, in that regard, and I did not know there was a National Chicken Council. <laughs> how do you get on that board? I want to know how you get on that board. But as they fight tooth and nail tonight for a crown that will perish, we are talking about a crown that will never perish, spoiler fade. And as they are battling with talent and, and helmets and pads and schemes, we are in a battle that inquires faith, commitment, and courage. And as they are fighting a physical battle, we are fighting a spiritual battle. And as they are fighting for a trophy, we are aiming for something called eternity. It's heaven or hell. And I just want to point this out. Man, we're going to have fun tonight at the game. I, I, I hope you have plans for that. But I assure you, more is at stake with what we're talking about here this morning and how we handle the Word of God and the living truth of God than any little ball game with a football in it. More is at stake. Heaven or hell is at stake with how we handle the gospel of Christ. And that is why this church has this vision right here. Will you repeat it after me? Bring people to Jesus, grow people in Jesus, and equip people for Jesus. One common denominator. Did you catch a word that was used three times? Jesus. Oh, people. People, people and Jesus. Who wrote that vision? I prepared this. I put a lot of work into this, and I didn't. Okay. Well, stay out of my preaching now. Uh, Jesus is supposed to be the answer, but we love people too. Uh, but we really love... We're going to skip this part of the message. But let me just tell you what a Christian is. A Christian is not liking Jesus. A Christian is becoming like Jesus. And you are never more like Jesus than when you are making disciples. We have learned this in this series that disciples make disciples. Actually, one of the ways that you know that you are a disciple of Jesus is the fact that you are busy making disciples because disciples make disciples. And there's no other passage in our Bible, I don't think, that amplifies that truth more than Matthew chapter 4. Just two verses this morning. That's it. Two verses that amplify this truth, that disciples make the, uh, disciples. It's from the words of Jesus, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, who was later named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me. And I just want to point this out. This isn't really the sermon, but being a Christian is about following Jesus. It's not about something that happened to you when you were a baby. 
It's not about a faith that is passed down from your parents or your grandparents because you have to personally decide to follow Jesus yourself, no matter what your parents or grandparents say, and I hope they do pass it down to you. But you have to follow Jesus yourself. It's not an X that you put on a survey whenever you're taking a test or you're taking a survey or poll, and they say, what faith-based background are you? And you mark Christian. That's not what it is to be a Christian. Being a Christian is essentially following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter, the one who he talks to here, actually says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, or chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, we follow in his steps, we follow Christ's example. So it goes on to say, follow me, and I will make you, and then Jesus makes a big statement. If you follow Jesus, he says, I'm going to make you into something. And I'm going to make you into something that you've never been before. And I'm going to make you into something that you would not be otherwise. If you follow me, I am going to make you something. Now, here's what maybe he said, verse 19, follow me and I will make you more spiritual. Is that what he says? We would think that's what he would say. When you follow Jesus, you become ultra spiritual. Let me just tell you this. There will be spiritual people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. Jesus doesn't say, when you follow me, all of a sudden you become ultra spiritual. And he doesn't say, follow me and I will make you more disciplined. I kind of wish he would have. It would help the amount of times I go to the workout room and, and, and what I'm going to eat tonight specifically. I wish that was what he would have said. Man, you follow me, you're going to be ultra-disciplined. He doesn't say that. And, and he doesn't say, follow me, and I will make you memorize more Scripture. Maybe some of you grew up in a church where it was equated, the more Scripture that you memorized, the closer you were to God. This is, and, and by the way, memorizing Scripture is a good thing, but isn't it remarkable that it's not mentioned one single time in the New Testament? That's not what it is to follow Jesus, that all of a sudden you have the Bible memorized inside and out. And, and by the way, uh, he could have said, follow me and I will make you morally upright. I mean, we would have guessed that. Actually, that's what the Pharisees would have guessed he would have said. Your behavior will be tip top when you follow me. I have failed more times than I care to tell you in my walk with Christ. Here's what he says. Verse 19, follow me. And I will make you, what does it say? Fishers of men. What in the world is that? When you follow Jesus, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to turn you into something. You're going to end up being somebody that you weren't otherwise. Whenever you follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. Simon and Andrew never had any doubts what it was to follow Jesus. There was no tricks up Jesus' sleeve. They knew what the vision was. They knew what the mission was. They knew what the direction was. Jesus was always laser-focused on reaching people, fishing for men. And Jesus went on for three and a half years, and he was showing his 12 disciples, this is how you fish for men. And then Jesus went to the cross, and whenever he raised from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven, and he gives him one last statement. His first statement is, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. His last statement in Matthew chapter 28 is, go, just in case you forgot, go, just in case this has exited your mind, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He starts his ministry, first words, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He finalizes it all. He bookends it with go and make disciples. 
and the first church launch team were getting ready to launch the first church service in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 1, as they're sitting there getting nervous, because that is what you do when you're about ready to launch a church. You get nervous. And they're not sure what they're going to do, and they're a little confused, and they're sitting in the upper room, and they're, okay, what, what is it exactly? How are we supposed to do this? And then one more time, Jesus comes along in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And surely someone raised their hand and said, oh, yeah. <laughs> he told us that's what this was going to be about. Because disciples make disciples. I want to highlight a truth in that Acts 1 passage before we move on. Because we're in a, spirit, a series called Compelled. We're in week four of that. And we're talking about how to reach people for the, uh, for the gospel of grace, for the love of Christ. We're talking about that. But I, I want to point out something about this verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't grow anything. We don't reach people. There's no fruit outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to talk about some practical things today. We already have the last couple of weeks. We will in the continuing weeks. But let's just be reminded of this gospel truth. The power is in him, not in us. And the apostle Paul pointed this out. He says, even in his preaching, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore the practical side. It doesn't mean we can go out and be a cold-hearted jerk and people are going to fall on their knees, prostrate before the Lord, confessing their sins. But it does mean that we remember that the power is in Him and not in us. Last week, the Lord challenged us to open up our homes so that we can open up people's hearts. It's about opening hearts and not homes. And today, I want to share with you about how to have a conversation. I want to give you five practical points. We've, we've gone through our text. Five practical points on how to fish for people. I got a question. Go ahead and raise your hand uh, if this is you, if the answer is yes. How many of you enjoy a good backyard barbecue? How many of you enjoy that? How many Christians do we have in the room today, basically, is what this equates to? Good. Last week, the, the Lord was challenging us to open our homes, but this is what I want to point out. If you can't share your faith in your flip-flops and in a Hawaiian shirt, then you're not going to share your faith anywhere. So let's go through some points. Uh, a couple of them are going to be don'ts. A couple of them are going to be do's. Number one, three words. Don't be weird. <laughs> this is deep stuff. You came to church today. Don't be weird. And some of you are like, well, I'm already weird. We know that. But <clears throat> all of us are weird, aren't we? We're all a little bit weird. But there's another, there's a Christian weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you that, I mean, maybe there's some non-Christians in here and you're like, yes, finally, tell them, stop being so weird. There is a Christian weird. And somebody needs to say something about it. So we're going to say something about it. This morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, <laughs> that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Anybody have a sibling who told you that you were special? <laughs> My older brother, Nathan, you're just a little special. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> 
There's another translation, I, th- I believe it's King James or New King James, that says, you are a peculiar people. Church, he wasn't calling us special or peculiar because of our weirdness. He was saying you are special because of your value system. He was saying you're special because of the priorities that you put in your life. He's saying you're special because of the way you love unconditional, uh, unconditionally. You're special because of the way you sacrifice. You're special because of the way you give and you love people. That's why we're special. That's why we're peculiar. And the world looks at that, and they want that. But here's the deal. Every friendship group, every circle group, every coworker group has that one person. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? That one person that's a little bit weird. And you're saying, my group doesn't have a weird person. Well, if you don't think that your group has a weird person, um, anyway, every group has that person. Just, just imagine for a second, you're in the backyard, and, and you're grilling burgers, and you're in your Hawaiian shirt, and some guys are talking, and you're playing some tunes. It's Leonard Skinner, Snoop Dogg, or Vanilla Ice. Now I'm the weird one, right? And, you're playing, and some guy walks in. Or, or, excuse me, he walks out of the house, and he says, hey, guys, and he's wearing this shirt right here. Want to talk about Jesus? That's what we're talking about. Now, and then it says in the bottom, let us pray. So <laughs> here's your sign. Um, <clears throat> we love you. We love you all. When I look at that T-shirt, and that is a T-shirt, believe it or not, when I look at that, boy, I think that is power of evangelism right there. There have been so many people come to Christ because of that. I want to talk about Jesus. No, when you do that, <laughs> I've never preached this point before. Some of you are kind of nervous. When you do that, you're not opening doors. You're closing doors. You are. You're not going to be the person that people pour their heart out to. Don't be Christian weird. We appreciate your stand for Christ. We do. Jesus wouldn't wear that shirt, (laughs) okay? He wouldn't wear that shirt in that setting. Or have you ever heard this? I know we just met. We've known each other for two minutes. But if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? (laughs) Okay, enough said. That's not evangelism. That's force-feeding people the gospel. That's not opening a door. It's closing a door. There's a book called I Once Was Lost, What Skeptics Taught Us About Their Path to Jesus. And here's what they said. In another day and age, God, religion, and church enjoyed the general respect of the culture. Not today. Religion is suspect. Church is weird. And Christians are hypocrites. Distrust has become the norm. People are tired of the sales tactics often employed by Christians and are often offended by our bait-and-switch attempts at introducing them to Jesus. And they're right. And they're right. So if you're following Jesus already, you have a way of ignoring that weirdness. But if you're not following Jesus, you just start ignoring the entire faith. That is what happens. If you want to reach people for Jesus, avoid the weirdness. Number two, avoid religious debate. Oh, my goodness. Avoid, you are not going to argue somebody into heaven. It's not going to happen. Now, this might surprise you. People actually enjoy talking about religious debates. They actually do. And and when they find out that I'm a preacher, they think that's all I want to talk about. I don't know why that is. They just think, oh, he must want to talk about theology today around the backyard grill. And the reason they want to talk about religious 
stuff is because they don't want to go here. They don't want to go to their heart. If we can talk about the academic, then we never have to talk about the emotions. And I can put a wall up for that. This happened to Jesus. In, in John chapter 4, Jesus runs into the woman at the well, and her heart begins to be exposed. Jesus starts to get to the heart. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband, come back. I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is, your, uh, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And then she thinks in her head, oh, snap. He knows me. My heart's beginning to be exposed. What am I going to do? Ah, I'll go to religious debate. And all of a sudden, it doesn't even make any sense. Verse 20, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. What in the world? Where'd that come from? <laughs> they weren't even talking about that. What, what did she do? Her heart began to be exposed. She went to religious debate. She said, let's get anything better than real talk. Well, what does this have to do with anything? It, it's, it's simply this. I have never seen someone become a Christian because they lost an argument with a Christian. Have you? Have you ever seen someone give their life to Christ because they got into a, a religious debate and they lost? So, okay, fine, I'll become a Christian. That does not happen. Avoid weirdness, avoid religious debate, avoid political debate. Don't show off how much you know about the impeachment trial. Don't go there. Don't talk about whether you like or dislike Donald Trump's hairstylist. It's not important. Nobody likes his hairstylist. <laughs> the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried to put Jesus in a box in terms of politics. Matthew chapter 22, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him. <laughs> they just left him alone. For three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, he never picks a side on politics. We don't have any recording of him picking a side. And they tried to get him to pick a side. And he, he would not do it. Now, do you think he had opinions? I bet he did. But he never went there because once, once that becomes your conversation, you just alienated half of our population, whatever half that is. And I got to tell you, I have opinions politically. I have strong poli uh, opinions politically. And my opinion is the right opinion politically. <laughs> and if you want to know what it is, after the service, I'll tell you what the right opinion is politically. <laughs> but here's, here's the truth. I'm not, willing, I'm not willing to break an opportunity to bring somebody to Jesus to share my political opinion. Our hope is not in a supreme court. Our hope is in a supreme being. And our supreme court, if it hasn't already, will let you down, but he will never let you down. And so avoid the weirdness, avoid religious debate, avoid political debate, and now focus, number four, develop and focus the relationship. Evangelism is not about following a script. It is about loving someone enough to tell them how to get to heaven. 
It's not about A, B, and C. It's about pouring out your heart on how Jesus has changed your life. Do you care where your friends and family spend eternity? Do you care? I do. There there isn't a prayer that I pray more than for our three kiddos to fall in love with Jesus. I did it last night when I couldn't sleep because I didn't have my sermon written. At about 11.30 p.m., I walked into the kids' room, and I prayed for them that they would be captivated by the love of Christ. I want my family, I want my friends, I want you, I want everybody I come across to spend eternity in heaven. And that means we develop relationships with people we wouldn't normally develop a relationship. Some research was done. There's a group right now of faith. Eh, this is, there's a group that is ever-increasing called the nuns. Have you heard of the nuns? It's a growing group, the fastest-growing group in America. They have no religious and no faith-based belief. That's why they're called nuns. It's none. Their biggest problem with Christianity is not our belief system. Their biggest problem with Christianity is not our values or morals. It's our lack of sharing our belief system. And so here's a one college-age student gal who's a nun. She said, I know some Christians. I have a Christian who sits next to me in class. She claims to know the only way to heaven, but she's never told me about it. Either she is a phony and does not believe what she says she believes, or she just doesn't care. Yeah. I don't believe our issue is really whether or not we share. It's whether or not we care. So here's what I've learned in my years of ministry, in just my Christian life. The more you care, the more you share. Do you say that with me? The more you care, the more you share. And we have developed, and I hate to say this, but we have developed in the Western Christian world, we have developed a kind of Christianity where it's okay, I call it rabbit hole Christianity, where it's okay to only pop your head out of the rabbit hole to go to the next Christian event and the next Christian Bible study and the next Christian program and the next Christian concert and the next Christian this, and we only hang around Christians and we never develop relationships with people far from God. That is not Christianity. The more we care, the more we will share Now, I am pushing for us to get to know our neighbors because the more we know about Scripture, the more we are to love our neighbors. That's what the Scriptures teach. And so our final point this morning is simply this, two words, what I want to leave you with. At some point in your conversation around that grill, around that dinner table, you need to go there. Go where? Yeah, you're going to have to pop the God question. You're going to have to have enough courage in your bones, enough love in your heart to bring up God. It's not going to happen on accident. You're going to have to go there at some point. This is why the early church prayed for boldness. Acts chapter 4, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak speak your word with great boldness. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, every time they talk about conversations, they kept saying they spoke boldly. Is that what people say about you? 
He's bold. He got my grill a little bit, but I can appreciate his boldness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very, church, bold. Yeah. You have a friend, you have a family member, you have a coworker, you have a classmate who needs your help. You know the way to heaven. Will you be bold? Will you care enough to share? 50 years ago, last year, it was last year, this city and the rest of the country and the rest of the world celebrated the 50th anniversary. The 50th anniversary of this. What is this? That's Neil Armstrong, the first man to ever set foot on the moon. Here's the truth. You never do anything by yourself. We all need help. To accomplish anything great, we all need help. And so there was a book written called Team Moon by Catherine Temesh, studying how many people helped them get to the moon. Over 17,000 engineers and scientists and mechanics worked on the spaceship. I didn't know that. Over 500 seam seamstresses worked on his spacesuit. And when you put everybody together who had a role in Apollo 11, there were over 400,000 people who got those three men to the moon. Whether you know it or not, you don't accomplish anything without somebody's help. Amen? And you don't get to heaven without somebody's help. Will you be that help for somebody else? Here's a picture of Venture Christian Church's first baptism. This is Bill. Some of you remember Bill, your original Venturites. I never thought of this, but just, here's just a thought. Have you ever... You can't get baptized without somebody's help. Huh. You can't baptize yourself. At least we have no example of that in Scripture. We have no example of that in the book of Acts where people are becoming Christians. You have to have somebody's help to come to the Lord. Rick Warren, I bet many of you have heard his name, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, bestseller of all time other than the Bible. He was telling a story about his, uh, their church, he's a preacher at a church in California, their 1,000th baptism. And he was telling the church and he was showing the video of the baptism to the rest of his church. It was a man in a wheelchair where they had to have four different men pick him up out of the wheelchair, walk him down the steps, lower him into the baptistry, immerse him into Christ, and raise him up out of the water. Four different men had to help. And then Rick Warren was showing this video to his church and he turned around and he said, if that man can get baptized, why can't you? but it just illustrates we all need someone's help. I'm challenging you, church. Disciples make disciples. Will you be that helping hand? We don't want to be a church that knows our Bibles but don't know our neighbors because if you know your Bible, you will know your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus didn't close himself off to the rest of the world. He came with a laser-like focus. He came to reach and to save those who were lost. And I, I am in that number. And Jesus came into my life and he has changed my life for the better. And anything I have that is good is from a, is, is from a perfect father. And we wanna say thank you today. Father, would we take this challenge 
and not, not just hear it, but to do it. Because followers fish, disciples disciple, Christians point Christ out to people. Father, help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.